So Wednesday, you Wait. and I, since we're kind of talking about sex all the time. Constantly. People send us vibrators and they send us sex toys and they send us all kinds of goodies, which are amazing. What a job. Could be worse. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is you have your favorites. We all have our favorites. Mine is a vibrator called Girl's Best Friend from, and from Sweet Vibrations. Yep. And mine is the Tulips, which I've talked about before from Sweet Vibrations. What's not to like? The variety, the bright colors, they're pretty, they're fun and beautiful and waterproof and rechargeable. And they're all under $50. Yes. I mean, they're affordable and it's so much fun. So you guys... Check out Sweet Vibrations for a real good time. You can look them up on Instagram at Sweet Vibrations or check them out at sweetvibes.toys. And at checkout, use our promo code for 15% off. It's wild love. That's right. And wild you're going to save a pretty penny mm-hmm. with which you can buy another one. <laughs> exactly. In this episode, we're joined by Victor Corona, a sociologist at Claremont Graduate University and CSU. He talked to us about nightlife, what it means to study gender and sexuality, and what he's noticed about his millennial students. Yeah, he's a professor, but he is not like the beige and boring professor that you think about out of college. He's fun, and he knows all about nightlife in the box in New York City, <laughs> and he wanted to take us to strip clubs that night. <laughs> yeah, love it. Mm-hmm. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay, Whitney, I'm so excited because today you're meeting one of my favorite people. Yes. Dr. Victor Corona. Here he is. The One of the leading experts, I can say the leading expert on nightlife, a sociologist who teaches classes on this uh, on the sociology of sex and gender, which are like rock concerts. <laughs> His students love him. I met him because he reached out to me um, when we both lived in New York City after my book Primates of Park Avenue came out, and he like was one of the most interesting people that I had ever met. And then we had so much fun. He helped me with Untrue. Um, just like with encouragement and research and going places with me and helping me understand um, all these cultures that I was encountering for that book. And he's here right now with us. Okay, so how do you become an expert in nightlife? Oh. Because you, because all other career avenues are closed to you because of the worst recession you've lived through and you have (laughs) nothing else to do but just to do what you love. Uh, my dissertation was about something not at all related to nightlife, about the U.S. Army Officer Corps. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was, you know, bony and dressed in horrible khakis and plaid shirts, and I worked for... Didn't you actually wear a pocket protector and... Something. Wow. <laughs> you remember? Oh, my God. I remember everything Already about you. That's amazing. Well, because working for the Army, you needed an ID to get into the building an ID for the specific office floor, and then this the actual ID that has your photo and the U.S. Army seal to access your keyboard. And you can't access your computer unless that ID is plugged into your keyboard. And so it's three IDs plus my Metro card. And so I had <laughs> a kind of goofy pocket protector to wear around my neck. I can't believe you remember that. I remember everything and, about you. And I had that in my pocket, right? And so I have so much respect and really honor the women and men of the United States Armed Services 
who sacrifice so much for what they do. Um, but when I left, um, the recession was really hitting the academy the hardest and there were no jobs and I missed New York. And so I went back to New York and I started to just kind of um, dig around nightlife and gradually the story came together that became my 2017 book night class. Wow. Can you imagine making the transition? I mean, I've said to you, Victor, I wanted to be a fly on the wall as your colleagues observed you transforming your body and yourself and the way you presented yourself, the way you had to, to start studying night class, to start studying they night life and writing night class. They thought I was insane. They still think I'm insane. Can you tell us like how that, how did that go over when you started this transition from like an, a guy studying the army wearing a pocket protector <laughs> to and khakis. A, a tattooed rip? gorgeous guy sometimes when we go out Victor wears glitter and wears it incredibly well and well the the glitter that you wear when we go out is kind of the least of it so how did the transformation take place and how did people take it um I mean they just kind of were surprised and asked asked a lot of questions but they saw that I was doing something that I was very interested in and that they were in some ways too boring to explore themselves. I think that's been my ongoing, um, not problem, but dilemma that I wrestle with, that as a university professor, the colleagues that I work with are extremely smart, but extremely boring people, bland, beige, mm -hmm. boring, boring people. <laughs> and then the people in nightlife are very, very exciting and fabulous and glamorous, but are living a different life than I am, you know? Right. Um, I can't be out every single night. You know, I have to go back and prepare my lectures and prepare my syllabi and and do what I'm supposed to do. Right. Yeah. So I'm kind of caught between these two worlds and I haven't quite figured out how to navigate that. But yeah, how do you do both? Because I go out and I'm like done for two I days. Know. I would be like, oh hell no <laughs> sort of lecture is happening tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, I, it just requires discipline. I've only intended this July will be 10 years of teaching. And in those 10 years, I've only been late to class five times. Wow. And the majority of those times were because of like commuter train delay issues. Not uh, because or, Right. Yeah. yeah. Because, you, because I just have to separate those two. In the classroom, my responsibility is to my students. And I'm not going to let those boring colleagues of mine say, oh, he's being the delinquent, the wild one. I'm not going to let them single me out. On the contrary, I, I'm proud of my strong course evaluations. I'm proud yeah. that this year, after only a year and a half of teaching in California, I was nominated for the statewide Faculty Innovation and Leadership Award. Okay, and yes. I can like, no, no, I'm just I'm nominated. I'm not going to win because what I surprised. do is too out there. But I'm, I, I acknowledge that as a fact that I do what my job is, you know, yeah. you have to meet the responsibilities of your job. And then what you do outside of that is your business, right? Right. And I also have to be responsible in teaching stuff about nightlife and pop culture in the classroom, right? right. It would be so irresponsible of me to say to my students, you should be the next Andy Warhol. You should be the next Amanda Lepore, right? It's not about that. It's about you exploring your identity, however you feel comfortable. Yeah. This is and beautiful. when you see Victor teaching his students and you see the relationship that your students have to you, 
you really, for me, I really realized um, you're you're innovating in the space of education. Your book Night Class was innovative. It sort of crossed genres, and you're just not what somebody would expect that they would be getting when they take a sociology class. My God, I wish I, I had mean, you when I was in college. Uh-huh. Lord, I had the boring, boring, <laughs> very strict professors. Like, great. Okay, can you tell us how did you decide? First of all, how did you decide to do sociology? Tell us about being Mexican American and did that have anything to do with your journey to be a sociologist, first of all? And then also how you decided to focus on sexuality and gender, which, I mean, I know your classes, I joked that they're like rock concerts, but it's hard to get into your classes. People love your classes. You're teaching about something that is people are really responding to. How did you come to that? Well, in my class, I talk about always being kind of an interstitial persona, meaning that yeah. You know, when you're an immigrant, you know, I was born in Mexico and I came here when I was a a year old. You're not of your home country and you're also not fully of this country. And my parents were Catholic, but they weren't like, you know, insanely conservative Catholics. I lived in the suburbs of New York, Westchester County. So it wasn't in the middle of nowhere. I could also spend time in the city and then go back home. Um, we were not at all wealthy, but we were. We also didn't starve. We weren't on 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 government assistance. So always, you were liminal. Yeah, always kind of living in between those spaces meant that you had to meant that I never really had a fixed identity. Mm-hmm. And so that it, it's no coincidence that my job is to study other people's identities. Yeah. And so I think that's what pushed me to do what I do now. To do sociology, you yeah. felt you were between. Between worlds, between identities, right. between cultures. Right. And so in college, I originally was majoring in political science, but it was all very kind of dry mathematical laws. And what I loved about sociology and still love about sociology is that it encompasses so much about the the messiness of social life, right? The kind of stuff that you look at, you know, changing norms, shifting influences, and so on. And so that's why I kind of gravitated toward toward that. I feel like sociology is, um, to your point that, you know, somehow there's something very boring sounding about it, but when you get into it, it's such a gossipy, wonderful, Mm. Mm -hmm. like story rich, um, social science. And you really, I think you bring that out for people. Talk a little bit about the sexuality and gender aspects of, you know, why did you decide that these were your great topics? Because you've really owned them. Well, in 2012, I started teaching gender and sexuality for the first time at Hofstra University out on Long Island with a very conservative uh, Jewish and Italian population. And, you know, I went in there and they must have thought that I was insane because (laughs) I was giving them Club Kids and Amanda Lepore and you know, Warhol and, and and drag queens and... These are people that Victor has come and they sit on panels in his classes and they give lectures. Ugh, I mean, so it's, cool. it is the most amazing experience. Go on. Sorry about no, that's that. that's all right. Just had to fangirl yeah. hard for a minute. <laughs> well, you've been one of the pop- most popular guest speakers that I have. And, and you know, they had to write essays in response to your visit at, at Columbia and... And they were really gushing over the role model that you are for them and for me. So 
Amen. Right. That's what I'm saying. So many things I love about Victor, but he (laughs) he did let me come to talk in his classes and it was great. But I think that you, by doing that, especially bringing in the um, nightlife people that you bring in, Mm -hmm. I think you just are showing students this is so much more interesting than the academy is such can be so much more interesting. What you study can be so much more interesting. You can you can make your studies relevant to your life. That I was think that's of, a big thing, right? Yeah. Making it relevant to your life because so many times students go through college and they're taking like math they're never going to use or mm-hmm. history right. that they're never going to use. And it's just so right. boring and like mundane and, and it yeah. doesn't make learning exciting. That's why I wanted to get back to, I, and I interrupted you mm. to talk about why you decided to focus on sexuality and gender and how that went. Was it controversial? You said that some students seem to think. Yeah, because Hofstra does have that kind problem. of conservative Long Island population. But out of that class, out of two of those classes also came our friend uh, Dana. Right. Oh, right. Right. She, she, uh, she, she, Dana uh, Troisi is, um, uh, uh, she was a student in two of my classes and she's now the, um, editor or managing editor of Go Magazine, a publication mm. in New York for um, young lesbian women. And she self-identifies as a queer bionic babe. Yeah. She has <laughs> this super sexy, yes, sexy, black prosthetic arm. She's a cyborg. Whoa. She's a cyborg. She's, she's, a she's, cyborg. The first, uh, she's the first cyborg that I've ever known. And that's like happening now. She can, you know. But, she, but aside from that, she is one of the funniest and smartest students that I've ever had. And she took two of my classes and, um, you know, we just became um, close friends and, and, and hung out. And when I read at the Hamptons, she hosted me and um, right. you've met her. And next week I'm flying to New York because she's doing an event at Samsung and I'm reading from my class there. So out of yeah. that population at Hofstra came, you know, some really extraordinary friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but I that- think you, you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but mm-hmm. here's an amazing thing that you bring up, Dana Troisi. Am mm-hmm. I pronouncing her last name the right way? Troisi. Troisi. Is that you, she became what she is, I think, in large part because of who she is and how you enabled her to be that in your class and you showed her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you kind of, helped her on her path in a really profound way. Because who writes the way, Dana's writing is great because she writes about sexuality, she writes about gender, she writes about identity. And she's really like using what she learned from you in a lot of ways in her classes with you. But she's making it super accessible, very sexy, very (laughs) fun. Mm -hmm. Well done, professor. Well, Mm -hmm. Well, again, I have to be very careful with my classes. You know, there's a certain responsibility that I can't askew no matter what. There's a lot of, we're living in an era where our, so, so many of our morals and norms are in flux. And there's a lot of kind of nonsensical, spiritual hucksterism out there. You know, mm-hmm. you can do all this, you can be all this, own all this, etc. And it's very, very dangerous, right? And so in my class, when I teach about people like Andy Warhol or Amanda Lepore or the Club Kids, or Lady Gaga, or and RuPaul and her, the drag queens. I have to be very careful. It, the point is not to say, go out and become Amanda Lepore. And I, and I often say on the last day of class, if I see you in an airport in five years, 
and you are Amanda Lepore, then amazing. I'll shake your, shake your hand and say congratulations. And I'll probably want a selfie with you, right? <laughs> but if I see you and you are married and have four kids and have that white picket fence life and you're happy, I'll shake your hand too, right? The point is about you choosing what you want to choose for yourself mm -hmm. and not doing it out of fear, right? That's my only guiding light because I'm not there as some kind of spiritual guru. I'm just there as a professor, right? But the point is to say, don't live your life out of fear based on what societal guidelines have taught you is necessary or, or important, right? Choose your own life and according to what you believe is right for you is really the only kind of guiding light that I have for them, right? Mm. And so I think maybe that just resonated a little bit with with Dana and some of the other students that I've worked with. Yeah. And, um, and I think the same thing has happened here in California, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that kind of opportunity. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, what I'm really wondering is what are the things that you, what are the concepts about sexuality and gender that you put out in that class that people are most surprised mm. by or most respond to or that they're most resistant to? Yeah. Because you're kind of out there in, you're in the thick of it. You could, you have your pulse, you have your finger on the pulse of what people in their late teens and early 20s, what they're reacting to, what they're looking for, how are they responding? What are they responding to? We are living in brand new revolutionary times. Um, ever since 2015 and Caitlyn Jenner's transition, mm -hmm. um, these are brand new days for us educators and mm -hmm. just all of us who think and write and talk about these things when it comes to gender norms and sexuality and how it's changing. And you both are obviously on the forefront of that. And that's why your book is so revolutionary that you're, you're not a spiritual huckster. You're bringing in hard science. You're paying attention to biochemistry and physiognomy to talk about how that can improve the human condition. And that's why Untrue is so important. And it um, gives people the chance to be like, okay, so here's the science. Now I get to choose what's going to make right, me happy exactly. and create the life that's going exactly. to make me happy. Like right. what you do with your relationship coaching. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's just like there's an infinite way to do this. There's not, it's not binary and it's not, you know, there's not just a few ways. Like create whatever it is for you outside. If it's outside of societal norm, right. great. If it's not, great. Right. As long as you're happy. Right, right. Um, and, and so this newness means that there's a hunger to try to understand all of these new concepts. Um, I was very honored that this semester, this past semester, I got to, I got to teach my first graduate seminar for the very first time. Oh. And it was Claremont Graduate University's very first seminar on queer and trans people of color. Oh, and much wow. of what we spent the time discussing was just how new and fresh these concepts are. And I see it among my much older, boring faculty colleagues, you know, and they're very uh, well-intentioned and woke and um, attentive to these things, but they can't, they often struggle to make sense of, for example, the new nomenclature around pronouns, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. talk the to whole, us about that. Yeah. The whole thing around pronouns, we spent so much time discussing this past semester and just in general because it is so new. And for someone of my generation, you know, it makes me feel old, right? 
Um, what about it makes you feel old? Because I know it makes me feel old. Be, <laughs> because I, I was just raised in a certain and trained in a certain way in elementary school because of some really great English teachers. Mrs. Gallery, hi. Um, hi. <laughs> that, for example, they, them, are indicators of plural and not of singular. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have these discussions in class about what it means that an individual who identifies as non-binary or non-conforming, gender non-conforming, wishes to be addressed as, as they or them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And obviously, as an educator, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to address people however they wish to be addressed, right? But mm -hmm. there are some people who are either resistant to it or are not quite sure how to, how to make sense of it right. or, or still sometimes inadvertently use terms that are not quite commensurate with how these new, very woke millennials identify themselves. I had one faculty yeah. member who said to me, and I won't say obviously <laughs> where, but said to me, oh, that person in class, they say they're trans, but they're not trans. And I'm like, first of all, it's not up to you to decide who is trans right. and who is not. Second of all, you can't ever say that to someone other than me, you know. And I, and if I say that in the classroom, it's it's an it's an egregious violence done to them in some way. Right, right. right. It's a it's a big issue. Okay, teach us some vocabulary words. <laughs> Please help us. This is great. Actually, we have a sociologist no, here who studies no. sexuality and gender. Can you help us? Because actually, I was so confused. I one time referred to somebody as post-binary. And she was like, not quite they said, not quite I'm non-binary. That is also the thing, too, is just okay, like, so how us. do you even bring up the conversation? Like, if you don't know right. the correct... Right. Do you just say to somebody, what are your pronouns? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's usually the way to go. If you meet someone and um, they'll, they'll often say to you what their pronouns are. And if you're not sure, you're welcome to ask or their friend will introduce them mm -hmm. according to certain pronouns. And then you just know. Right. And you go along with that. Right. And tell mm -hmm. us, mm -hmm. tell us for our listeners who don't know what non-binary means and how it's used and... Well, individuals who identify as um, neither gender or in between, um, or some days want to perform a much more masculine identity and other days perform a much more feminine identity. And sometimes they identify with um, a, a masculine version of their name and sometimes with a feminine version of their name. And so they often prefer to be called um, they are them. The reason it's an issue, <laughs> because we are here to spill tea, is that um, older members of the LGBTQ community think that it's bullshit. Um, Why? Bec because they grew up in an era, in, in the era of Stonewall, because okay. they grew up when, in an era when they, you know, Rosewood, our mutual friend, yeah. her friends threw stones at Stonewall, right? They knew what it was to fight the police. They mm -hmm. knew what it is. They know what it is to be bashed. You and I, everyone in this room, will go out and walk down the street and people will not give a damn about who we are. 
they will not say anything. Well, they might say that you both are very pretty, but they won't say anything to <laughs> or the Or that you're totally ripped and hot. <laughs> but these Stunned. individuals, that the <laughs> they know what it is to say, oh, is that a he, she? What is that? Bruce mm. Jenner? Um, awful comments like that. And so they know what that kind of harassment is. I mean, is. they came up in full-on homophobia yes. where you embraced your gay right. identity and you could be killed for right. it. Mm -hmm. I interviewed for my new book about L.A. performers, I, a performance artist in Silver Lake who said, at the height of the AIDS crisis, I had to make I had to make a schedule of which hospitals to visit when because so many of my friends were dying of AIDS. And now these millennials are gonna complain to me about pronouns. Mm. They hate us and we hate them, Ooh, right? And, wow. so that's a, and I said that in class. I said, you need to understand, or we all need to understand that the older generation is approaching this issue from a very, very different perspective, right? Yeah. And, and they believe that millennials today, especially in certain classrooms, are mollycoddle and need to realize that there are much more darker dangers. There, there are dangers that really need to be reckoned with that go beyond just what pronouns you are called. Right. This kind of reminds me a little bit of when second wave feminists mm. said about, you know, subsequent generations of feminists, like, you're not being grateful you're, you know, you're being ingrates about mm. what we accomplished on your behalf and our number. Or just, short of saying that, just saying, you don't think you need feminism, you do need feminism. So it's a generational thing mm -hmm. we're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know what, just to your point, I recently witnessed an interaction between a woman who was roughly my age, she was in her 50s, and um, like a very cool lesbian, very glamorous. And she was speaking to a woman in her 20s and was attracted to her and um, said to her, obviously said something like, you know, wanted to get with her and said, um, what's going on? And this young woman said, well, I'm non-binary. And the woman in her 50s, the super Glamazon lesbian looked at her and said, I'm 52 years old. Are you gay or what? <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of, sort of got, right. I had the privilege of seeing in this one interaction everything that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. That encapsulates well this whole kind of diverging set of narratives about who we are, right? Right. And that's something that we all get to witness ourselves, right? How these different um, ways of thinking will clash and and hopefully um, reach some kind of resolution. Yeah, yeah is, is there a way to like bridge the gap or like is there a resolution or how do we reach that? Um, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to that. I think that, well, I, I'm a cynic in the sense that I think it'll take a few years for the current generation to work its way out of this kind of spasm of navel gazing. You know, any revolution always starts with excesses. Every single revolution in history, I mean, the, the French Revolution is maybe the most famous one for its excesses. Um, but this idea that the revolution devours its own children, it always goes too far. And then eventually it it it, it mediates. It's like right? the pendulum swing. Right, exactly. Eventually mm -hmm. it reaches some healthy center, we hope, 
right? Um, but I think it's going to be a few years until we work our way out of that. So you think we're in a pretty extreme moment right now with with our identities? I mean, I, I, I just think that, you know, as I said, it's my 10th year of teaching. And for the first time, I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel the, the generational difference between my students and me, right? Oh, in the sense that the, the, the smartest people I've known in my life, I would say that I've met maybe five or six, you know, genius level people, like truly insightful people. And yes, you are one of them Wednesday. <laughs> um, but what they all have in common is an enormous curiosity about the world and people. You know, if they meet someone on the street who seems like they just have an interesting story, this person who will have written a ton of books and done so much and be the CEO of a company and be a tenured endowed professor somewhere, they'll just ask all the questions, right? They are enormously curious. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that sense of curiosity is not what I see among many of my millennial students. The, 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 the current revolution in gender and sexual norms is inspiring the opposite. It's the following. Here is my catalog of oppressions. Here's stuff about my body and about my identity and about my story. It's all very much focused on, on themselves, right? And for me as an educator, it's very disillusioning and dispiriting to see an intellectual cult culture that is so focused on looking inward and not oh, on the outside world. And, and, and sociology for me is all about being curious about the social world. And it's Ooh. not that and it's not that we shouldn't spend some time navel gazing. I think it, we, we all have to devote a part of our youth and young adulthood to understanding who we are and why we do the things that we do. Where we fit in society. Yeah. Right. But but when that becomes your entire intellectual and research agenda, it becomes very limiting. And that's why that's why I said that this in my 10th year of teaching, it becomes a little scary for me to see that I no longer have that sense of common cause with my students. And mm. curiosity, like that you're not seeing curiosity in your mm -hmm. students about the world around them. And there's so much to learn about yourself and about other people. I mean, right. wow, that's right. wild. You're only learning one very small part of the story if you stop with yourself. Um, my literary agent, Richard Pine, sometimes ribs me that I do something called me-search. And, and he talks about how there's a genre of writing called me-search, right? About like, oh, this thing happened to me, so I got curious about it, and I found out that it happens to more people than me, and so on. We know about this genre, right? You're talking about like a genre beyond me-search, which is just like <laughs> me. Right. Right, exactly. Is this different from what people have always said about younger generations being not ambitious enough, not engaged enough, not this enough, not something enough? Is this the same old narrative or is something really different? It feels different to me. It, it is different because they, you know, whenever I teach contemporary theory classes, I always assign... Um, one of my favorite books, Gilles Povetsky's Hypermodern Times. And he says, we've, we've surpassed the postmodern. We are now in a hypermodern era 
characterized by the acceleration of our everyday lives through things like our cell phones. Mm -hmm. You know, we can immediately access and disseminate all kinds of information just with a few taps. We can destroy our reputations with a few taps. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really easy. Yeah. And also by a profound anxiety about who we are, right? Those two A's, acceleration and anxiety, a profound anxiety about who we are in the sense that before in pre-modernity, in agrarian times, if you were born a serf, you died a serf. If you were mm-hmm. born a noble, you died a noble, right. right? Now it's just a roll of the dice. One day you are this, and then you roll the dice, and you're something completely different. We can continuously reshape ourselves because of this unprecedented moment of freedom that we mm-hmm. have. And so it's, it's almost a very sad story of be careful what you wish for, you just might get it, right? How long have we waited for this kind of freedom? And now that we as human beings have it, we don't really know what to do with it, right? right. We, we have so much freedom about who we can be and how we can love and live, and we don't know what to do with it, which is why we have this rise in kind of charlatans and these kind of spiritual hucksters selling this dime store um, you know, philosophy for how to craft your life because we just don't know how to live. Lord knows, no pun mm. intended, that the traditional religions have failed us. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so we need some other some other people, some other source of authority to tell us how to live because it's just become so open-ended. And that open-endedness is a byproduct of, of this enormous freedom that we have, mm. right? Right. And so when I see my students reckon with this, I know that that's what they're dealing with. Mm. Um, and so it's a much, much bigger problem. And of course, in line with that is, is the fact that we are, as we were saying during our commercial break, <laughs> Could we be living through Weimar? That's a very scary thing. Yeah. Tell our viewers who might not understand our listeners what we mean when we talk about that. Well, this idea that the, you know, the, the Weimar Republic was the, the very brief period of kind of cultural and democratic flourishing that happened in Germany before um, 1933, before Hitler, uh, Hitler's Enabling Act made him dictator. And so the idea that right before a country really makes the turn toward far-right dictatorship, Mm -hmm. that it has this kind of period of, oh, yeah, we're okay. Yeah, what are your pronouns, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, do you, right? Be Marlena Dietrich doing cabaret. Be Marlena Dietrich, right, exactly. (laughs) With Margot Lyons. Where everyone is willkommen, right? Right, right. That whole idea. Tell people what the box is. It's the best place on planet Earth. Oh, my God. I, I was talking about it earlier. Like, I thrive at the box. I just love it there. Right. And then so I'm 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 so happy that you already know what it is and that you've partied hard there. So that's already oh, yes. yeah. I've done a fair share of partying hard there. <laughs> and Victor almost lived there, I feel like, when he was researching and writing right. night class. But I would love for you to explain what the box yeah, is. Tell because people. when people I don't like to explain it to people, I just like to take people there. Mm-hmm. But I yeah, would just that's love right, like, the right way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The box is New York's best nightclub. It is one of the last places in America, I think, that offers you just outrageous performance art um, of the kind that you will never see anywhere else. Um, It was founded by a group of theatrical entrepreneurs, uh, including Simon Hammerstein, the um, 
grandson of the Oscar Hammerstein II, who of course is responsible for the sound of music in Oklahoma and all these songs that we can all sing along to, mm-hmm. right? And so it's so funny to think of the box right, in the tradition exactly, of right, those exactly. musicals. And so it's just, you know, it, it caters to a very high-end um, celebrity A-list audience, but also brings in, you know, club kids fresh off a bus from Iowa who are trying to make their way in in New York. And they just offer extraordinary um, acts that you won't see anywhere else. We were talking about Rosewood, the mother of the box, their headliner who does all kinds of work with her orifices and shitting on stage and pissing on the audience and 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 is it real is it real poop and real pee no no okay yeah i was wondering no and she she would hate for me to say this but it's like it's a kind of like uh chocolate baking mix oh yeah it's all fake yeah it's all fake. makes sense um i was at the box and uh I was sitting with my girlfriend near the stage and she was like looking at her phone. And Rose. I don't know if it was. Oh, your girlfriend. My girlfriend was looking at her phone. I don't know if it was Rose or somebody else, but she came up and snatched her phone and just mm-hmm. chunked it on yeah. stage. <laughs> I died. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, she was, was like, be in this moment. Right. Yeah, and respect, pay attention. My, respect my performance. Right. That was probably Rose because she hates it when Rose people are, are on their phones at nightclubs. Like you are there to see performance art that you can't see anywhere else. I agree. Enjoy it. And here I am like using my my anus, my rectum to perform this commentary and you're not paying attention. And so that's definitely her. So when she, <laughs> I have to say this, when she came to speak to my class at Columbia, I forbid phones and computers in my classroom. And there was one poor soul who somehow forgot my rule. Oh, no. Yeah, exactly. And so this was like- It gives me anxiety just <laughs> getting ready to hear about it. And so <gasps> this was like a 10 a.m. class at Columbia and Rose gets off at the box at like 4 a.m. And so she hadn't slept. She came straight. Oh she went gosh. to the diner and then she came straight to Columbia. And I don't know what my student was thinking, but she was in the back doing this. <gasps> and Rose says, <laughs> Rose says, am I not entertaining you? Because I could have that phone up my anus in five seconds. <laughs> thing we have to say when somebody's on yeah, your sofa. Yeah, exactly. And so my student came up to me after class, like sobbing. Oh, I just want to res- I just want to apologize to Rose. And I was like, go home, just go away. Um, but yeah, Rose is all, and the box in general is all about like, put your phones away. Yeah. And if you try to document anything that's happening on stage during the performance, some bouncer will come and like, and stop you. Not, not because you. they don't want you to share it. I think, although right. that might be part of it, but I think it's because it's about an immersive experience right. in decadence mm-hmm. and they want you to be there. Like right. commit to that. Yeah, exactly. And it's a place that, you know, is very hard to get into. And by um, the way, commit to discomfort because. Yeah. Right. Right. Because you're not, you can be one of the smart, one of the richest, most famous people on the planet. You will be put on the spot there. You know, you're not exempt from the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just a place that that is 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 hard to access, but that I found my way into and became a kind of home. You know, it was your home. And um, you know, Dee Dee Lux, another headliner there, became one of my um, best friends, and she does amazing acts, basically as this kind of you know armored astro warrior woman, fucking a robotic horse, 
right? Yeah. As one does. As yeah. one does. And, <laughs> and I course. saw her do the act where she pulls someone up on stage and basically strips them. And so when I brought my agent there, who we were talking about before, I, I won't mention her name, she, you know, I was like, take her, take her. And she did. And like <gasps> it ripped off her dress. <laughs> And that agent talked about it for a good year. She would not shut up about it. About wow. Didi Lux bringing her up on stage and like and stripping, stripping her. her dress off. And she was like, I was in my bra and panties <laughs> on the stage. <laughs> but she loved it, right? And it's all about like pulling people out of their comfort zone. And yeah. And, 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 yeah. and I think the fact that they take phones away from you shows how much we use our phones to buffer yes. against having an experience oh, and our yeah, anxiety, absolutely. right? We're, they're just like our blankies or our binkies. My kids used to have pacifiers. I feel like <laughs> our phones are our pacifiers, mm-hmm. right? And I love that there's a place in New York where they take it away from you. Right. There's a, this other place that I've been in Prague called Gold Fingers or mm. Golden Fingers. And they put on some shows very similar mm-hmm. to The Box. And they bring people up there. They, there's this bachelor party in this the, I guess the bachelor went up there and they tied him to a chair mm. or they tied him to the pole and they were whipping the shit out of them. I mean, <laughs> right. welts all wow. over wow. his body. It was wild. And then they had another, they did this full like nun and priest show. Like they put on this beautiful show and it's like a play. But then by the end of it, you know, they're like peeing on each other and using like a glass dildo and like fucking her with the glass dildo right there on stage. <laughs> and they have like the towel and they're wringing out the towel on stage. Wow. And I'm sitting there like, oh my God. <laughs> I had no idea this is what I was getting myself into. Right. Someone was like, Who it's knew? just a strip club. Just go and hang out at a strip club. Cool. But no, there, there was so much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if somebody went to the box thinking they were going to dance. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. They wouldn't know what they were in store for. Okay, how do we understand a place like the box and our preoccupation with pronouns and what's going on and what you teach in the era of Trump? What can you, sorry to be such a bummer, but I can't have you here without having you talk to us a little bit about like, what's the future of sexuality under Donald Trump, as you see it, you you referred to Weimar Germany. Do you have a really dark vision? Where are we headed? What are you seeing as a sociologist who studies sex and gender in this moment? We have this great, we're talking about decadence in the box. Mm-hmm. We're talking about students being very into their own identities instead mm-hmm. of turning outward into the world. Mm-hmm. I'm Now I'm adding a new thing into the- Into the mix. Into the mix. Well, at the personal level, I feel very um, disillusioned. And um, I feel like there's only so much mental energy that one can, and emotional energy that one can devote to the Twitter feed of constant electoral stuff leading up to 2020. We're a long way from November 2020. No, mm. and already there's still so much. So it's only going to get... Um, but it is encouraging that my my students are so attentive to it and they realize how high the stakes are, you know? Mm-hmm. The one thing that is very positive is, is that if we do recognize that we are living in a possible Weimar era, that we can arrest the historical process and say we're not going to go down that line, mm-hmm. right? That we're going to be so attentive and so committed to avoiding that destiny, to avoiding our own 1933, 
that we will prevent that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I don't want it to seem like I'm in some ways wagging my finger at the the pronoun issue. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's great that we are so attuned to how we think of our identities. But it's, I was just trying to draw the parallel to any revolution that has its own potential for excesses. Right. That's all. Right, right. But if, if, if that kind of also creates a way for us to avoid the destiny of, of the actual Weimar Germany, then I think that would be... That would be great, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think we've all, we've already seen some instances of that. You know, we've seen, um, you know, a new Democratic House majority that is 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 really helping to prevent those kinds of excesses. Right. You see signs of hope. Some. 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 But but you know, I mean, th- this is something that other scholars of nightlife around the world and I have a lot of debates about. Some of them see, it's basically this division between nightlife as politics, nightlife as a community builder, and nightlife as escapism. Mm. And I, to be quite honest, tend to go to the escapist route, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And what I say to the nightlife as politics scholars and I respect them and I've endorsed their work and I think it's great and I'm happy to see other academics not be bland and beige and boring. But I think that if if you are there on the dance floor, that's great and you are expressing your gender and your sexuality and and some version of your political self, but you are not registering voters and you are not running for office and you are not mobilizing mm. your electorate. That is not politics, right? Mm. Is it escapist in some way? Um, do we need that? Do we need a chance to to not have to constantly be watching, you know, every single moment of the current occupant of the Oval Office on CNN or MSNBC? I think that's valuable too. And in those escapist spaces, whether it's the strip clubs that I'm writing about now or the BDSM raves that I've been going to, BDSM that al- raves, yeah, that also offer a space that is a huge alternative to mainstream bourgeois culture and certainly what trump represents um i want to hear about these bdsm raves i know we have to hear about a couple things you have to tell us about bdsm raves and then you have to tell people how they can find you on social media but before that between the bdsm rave explication and how they get in touch with you by social media i just need your top line thoughts about instagram I'm not letting you go without those three things. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I I think of social media as a um, it's just a, a part of what those of us who are in the culture business do to sell books. Alas, you need to be involved in social media um, to sell yourself. Yeah, you yeah. have to, you're, you're selling a you're, you're selling a product, and you have to show people that you matter, especially in Los Angeles. Lord knows you have to show people that you that you matter, that you are worth their time, that you are worth a callback, that you are worth the text back. And that means them then seeing you at this or that. That means them seeing me at the Jessica Jones premiere last week or at some other party or at some other thing where they say, oh, this piece of shit actually matters and I should respond to his or his email. I should respond to his text and not just completely 
ghost him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a currency, right? A if, currency. if you are rich, if you are beautiful, that is a currency too, right? I don't have those things, so I have to use these other things to, in order to get my shit sold, right? Um, <laughs> it is a way to... Um, to sell a product. That said, it is also it can also be become an extremely um, exhibitionist thing. You you begin to live your life on that instead of in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach. I've, I I taught Columbia's first social media seminar in 2011. I taught a social change class at um, Cal State LA that focused heavily on this. It, it, there is the danger of displacing one's identity onto that. Right. And, and it becomes right. Di- yeah. Your digital self becomes yourself, right? Right. Your second self. Right. Which, which, which is not Instagram. your right. Which is not your real self. It is your curated self. Right. right. It, it is the museum of you, the things that you've chosen to display to the world about you. Right. Right. Yeah. We were talking about that um, with Jason Ellis on his show earlier this morning. I was on his show and, and it's one thing to be very vulnerable on his radio show, you know, but then it's a different thing to be vulnerable with face-to-face, like right. with real human connection. And if we're living our lives on social media, it is like this curated vulnerability mm-hmm. because you're not getting the uncomfortableness or uncomfortability of being face-to-face with somebody. Right. You know what right, makes exactly. me laugh? And I wanna say this because it's a thing to get a sociologist's view of. <clears throat> what always makes me laugh is when t- people talk about, like on Instagram, I just, I just try to be my true, authentic self. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh right. my God, that's, no, you're not. The like whole- I try to be as authentic as possible, but I mean, there's still stuff that I don't show. Like you don't see me, like I threw up 30 seconds ago. <laughs> like I'm not showing that on, you know, Instagram. Right. And it's just like- And I want to thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm here, right? right? But it's like you, I am trying to be as vulnerable and share as much as my life as openly as possible. But it's like, there's still things that are kept private. Right. And right. We, let's just not get, get it twisted that this is what our real lives are like. Okay, so right. how do, wait, first tell us about the BDSM, BDSM rave and then tell us how people can, going? can reach you on social media and where we can find you. Um, well, that actually goes back to the box. Their ex-director, whom I interviewed for the book, is this um, brilliant young man named Craig Klein. And like me, is one of the transplants who left New York and came to L.A. And he started working with a collective that started throwing these raves at kind of, you know, warehouse spaces downtown that incorporate a... Um, BDSM element to them in the sense that there is, of course, the dance floor with the the strobe lights and the red lights and this really great kind of techno acid music. Um, But then they, and because it's LA, you know, you can have an open air BDSM patio, right? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting for me as a sociologist is that what does it mean when certain things that you do become your identity, right? Mm. It's like when we went to that polyamory thing, right? And you said I was so mean to those people, but it was because (laughs) like, 
if you're polyamorous, like go ahead, do it. Like by all means, or or whatever sexual expression you want. Mm-hmm. But what was so curious to me about that cocktail party that we went to is that the fact that what they do privately in their bedroom, in their homes, became their whole identity. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. right. We and talked question, about that. Yeah. Right. And the question becomes why? If that's what you do to reach your own level of personal fulfillment and sexual fulfillment. Why does that then subsume all these other identities? That's why I was kind of right. reading them, right? And it, well, reading them in the sense that trying to understand what was going on. You were. You were being very sociological about your bitchiness. <laughs> <laughs> and so something similar is happening with these BDSM raves, that the whole spectacle of like being out there and being paddled and being spanked and being whipped becomes an opportunity, going back to your question about social media, to say, I'm here, look at me, right? At, at, his, at my friend Craig's directorial debut at the very swanky Peppermint Club in West Hollywood, it was on Good Friday, it was very sacrilegious, I'm sorry to any <laughs> believers watching. You know, he did, he did the usual kind of, you know, dom sub-dynamic, this beautiful brunette came out as the dom and she had this beautiful blonde sub that she was pulling around on a chain. And the opener was that she would sh- fake shit in her mouth, right? Mm. And then she walked around on a chain covered in the fake shit for the rest of the evening. That was the opener. And then the finale was this other very beautiful uh, brunette dom pulling out a very obese man with his micro penis taped up in black tape. And I was like, okay, Craig, this is your finale. You're probably just going to have him be paddled or something. Okay, whatever. I've seen this before. But no, on Good Friday, (laughs) (laughs) on Friday, the beautiful brunette Dom um, uh, nailed. Oh, (laughs) Lord. Nailed the dude's scrotum to a a wooden bench with four nails. Right. What did the dude do? Did he yelp or anything? That's or? what I'm saying. It, 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 he enjoyed it. He was reveling in it. And it wasn't just like... I, now, the question becomes, did he have some kind of sexual gratification by having a beautiful woman nail his scrotum to a wooden bench four times? Mm-hmm. Probably, mm-hmm. right? But what did it mean that he was doing it like on stage in front of a crowd of people... At the Peppermint Club, right? <laughs> a super swanky West Hollywood, n- close to Beverly Hills Club, right? It had something to do with the spectacle of identity, of, of him saying, this is me being obese, having this micro penis, whatever, but I am, I, am, I am enduring and enjoying this pain, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's why I enjoy nightlife so much as a so- social laboratory, because I, I, I tell my students it's like a banana, right? Our, our day selves are stripped away like a banana peel. And here we are and we see some, some much more authentic version of ourselves than what people say is on social media. Thank God we have Victor Corona to explain yeah. BDSM raves to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not just to tell us they exist, but to tell us what they mean. Victor, I love you so much. I, I love, love you your too. work. Me too. You guys, the book is Night Class, and Victor will have a new book soon enough, the title of which is May I Say It? Sure. Hollywood yes. Hustle. It's going to be great. And in the meantime, you can read Night Class. Um, 
Where can people find you on social media? Uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I am Victor P. Corona. So it's pretty easy. Straight to the point. Straight to the point. Love mm -hmm. it. Go check him out, guys. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Wednesday. Thank you, Whitney. You're the best. Thank you.